Larry Thompson is a letterpress printer based in Merrickville, Ontario. He works out of the studio he shares with his partner, artist Holly Dean, creating broadsides, block prints, and limited edition hand-bound books from handset type. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. So we're here today to go through the process of letterpress printing a book. So perhaps we could start at the very beginning. One has to have an inspiration to print a book as subject matter. And for me, that subject matter comes out of classical literature, particularly English literature. Pretty much anything before 1920 is fair game for a letterpress printer to be in the public domain. It's kind of funny the way that works, though. As the time keeps ticking by, more and more works will become... Well, I guess that's another issue altogether. Is it's hard to say as um, they keep extending the copyright. Disney. Uh, the Mickey Mouse laws. It's now 70 years. It used to be 50. So with inspiration, you know, I'll either have an idea in mind or go through my library. In the case of uh, the book we're talking about right now, Kubla Khan, it's a poem by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. It's just a, a fragment of a poem, really. It's one that always resonated with me, so I chose it as the subject of my first book because it, it's very much about building castles in the air, which is a little bit what I'm doing, printing books this way. It's, it's a little bit crazy. Folly. It's, it's, it's very much about the creative process, from conception to completion. He's already had his creative moment, if you will, or something, and what you're wanting to do is present it to the world in a way that you think justifies that creativity. It's uh, my expression of the poem purely for my own satisfaction. Well, you always hope that when you print a book this way that others will come to it and, and appreciate it as well. And I take inspiration also from other fine press printers. Sort of a benchmark. That's right. In Canada, we have a number of excellent presses that are producing top, top quality work, like Barbarian Press, his Biting Dog Press in Toronto, run by wood engraver George Walker, Church Street Press, another wood engraver named Alan Stein, does that. I have books from all these uh, people. You see, and he's in Toronto and all this time, is he? Uh, actually, no, he's in Perry Sound. Perry Sound, okay. And, and George Walker's in Toronto. In Toronto. Barbarian's out in Mission, Mission BC. BC. Yeah, okay. That's right. They're all doing exceptional work. And, uh, and not just exceptional for Canada, exceptional around the world. It's in the, I would stack these three and several other printers in Canada uh, up against the, the international standard, for sure. Yeah. I'm lucky to have these in my collection, so I can, I can refer to them as I'm going about designing my own books. I also tend to also look at books from the 19 uh, teens and 20s and 30s, a really sort of enlightened age of book design. Any particular uh, designers that you're uh, keen on? Uh, so I'm looking at more type designers, really. Uh, Frederick Gowdy is one of my favorite type designers. I hearken back to William Morris, of course, uh, in the Kelmscott Press as being sort of a primary, almost a primal inspiration for uh, the, the type of work that I do. Yeah, um, 1890s. That's right. So what do you get from them? specifically from looking at Shakespeare's Venus and Adonis uh, by the Barbarian uh, Press? It's, it's a guide. It's a guidebook. I look at how they've uh, arranged their type. I look at how they've used their illustrations in conjunction with type. Spacing, it's, it's the combination of design and, uh, and the actual typeset together. Precisely. There are other aspects as well. There's the fact that they've left a page blank, for example. Well, that's an issue. It's margins. Nice, generous margins in this yeah. case. There's the way they've, they've handled basically what are called problems. And it's not really problems. It's like challenges that, that are presented to a typographer, to a bookman who, who has to print this edition and, and do it in a way that is attractive. So letter spacing, line spacing, I said margins. So you like their solutions? I like their solutions quality of the printing. But you wouldn't be able to 
get too much from that. Just I mean, you you see that it's good, and you sort of that spurs you on to do well, something. Well, basically, I would be comparing my work with them. Comparing your proofs. My proofs. I'll frequently run back. You know, I'm looking under the glass at my prints and seeing that you know it's not crisply black. See what what other printers, these other fine press printers, have achieved to see if it's comparable. So I'm not copying per se, although certainly all these works are worthy. Was an homage to them. They're inspiring me to sure. to a higher level. I use them as a benchmark. We've got the work that you've uh, chosen. We've got the benchmark. Now we're moving on to developing proofs and mock-ups. So uh, basically what I've done, it's not just the, uh, the poem Kublicon and its introduction by Coleridge, but I decided to write an introduction of my own, basically to explain why I chose this book as, as the first book off the press. A dedication and the ISBN number and things like that. I'll create a complete manuscript of everything that's going to be set in type, and then I'll create a mock-up. So I basically take papers, fold it into book form, and start taking chunks of text and, and taping it down and moving it about. Uh, these are very, very rough proofs. But it's a nice physical It, it actually thing to it takes it takes it from being uh, a concept into a real thing. A, a real thing. It's, yeah. a, it's an actual. And for that, I I work with a computer. It's a wonderful tool for um, uh, book design in that you can use uh, layout programs to create mockups. There are some book artists out there who actually uh, use laser printers to, to produce their books. I'm less interested in, in, in doing that. Uh, there's a limited amount of paper that you can actually use to print on in laser or even offset, whereas with letterpress you can, you can print on rougher papers. The idea is to create a, a tactile experience, yeah. not just yeah. with the impressive type into beautiful paper. There's something about the letterpress. They often talk about the third mm -hmm. dimension. That's literally speaking the, the, the bite into the paper that you can feel as you rub your fingers across yeah. it. It's a wonderful feeling, yeah. But it's also, a, I don't know, there's something uh, subtle, a nuance in the work, in the hands of a fine press printer. That's something I would truly love to emulate. I don't know, that third dimension. I'm not sure what you Esoteric. Mean. It's a, I don't know, it's, it's a feeling when you pick up a handmade book, yeah. it's hand printed, it feels different compared to a you pull of off the shelf at a, sure. at a bookstore. Uh, I don't know if it's because the type is crisper, I mean, but I get the same feeling with books that material that's been printed letterpress poorly. I mean, you can tell yeah. that there's yeah. handwork involved in it. This isn't just a throwaway thing, it's something that's really yeah. part of a tradition. And that's right. Okay. You're yeah. advocating the use of computers. Absolutely. Some, some may not. Some, some, some may not. There are purists who, who like to work through the whole process, and there are ways of doing that. You have your own set of fonts here. Yes, I do. How many fonts do you have? I have one house font, Italian old style. So I have uh, a cabinet, which is uh, like a chest of drawers, a narrow chest, uh, narrow drawers filled with type trays, six sizes of the Roman and six sizes of the Italic. How much space would that take up then, roughly? It's about as large size of a chest of drawers, a large chest of drawers. Yeah. So you can't really afford to have too many of those. Well, no, there's some people, some letterpress printers who are what I call you know, uh, type demons. They love all types of type, and they, uh, they fill up all their space with cabinets of type, you know, because they like a lot of freedom. Me, I'm not so concerned about that. I've looked at all sorts of different types. I decided which one I wanted. I got a quantity of that. I'm still buying it. Where would you buy that from? Three or four people who are founding type in the United States and Canada using the old equipment. Swamp Press, I believe, in New York. So, so you've chosen one that, that really expresses 
your essence or something that's important yeah, to you? Yeah, I lean as a press. I mean, I lean towards a classical and conservative approach. So the type reflects that. It was uh, designed by Frederick Gowdy in the 1920s, and it was meant to be a homage, really, to a type called Centaur, which was uh, designed by Bruce Rogers. Now, Centaur is a beautiful font, and I, I could easily have chosen that for the house font, but um, uh, it, is, it is quite grand. It's, it's almost a little, bit a little uh, just, just a little, I guess. Uh, great thing about Gaudi's interpretation of Centaur in Italian old style is that he had commercial printing in mind when he did it. It kind of goes halfway. It's designed to be used in many applications. Centaur, I think, would be great for the Oxford Lectern Bible, you know, I mean, uh, um, and, uh, and it, it, I mean, I would, you know, say it's, it's, it's one of the most beautiful fonts that they've ever created. But for me, I wanted to at least begin my, uh, uh, my work on the press first, you know, decade or so using a, a font that's more versatile. More accessible and easy. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So we've done the markup. Yeah. You're using the computer to design. So now we go from from there to actually setting out the page layout and the design of the book, the way it's actually going to look, the size of the page, what the margins are going to be like. I do up what is essentially it's essentially a piece of paper that's going to be the exact same size as the sheets I'm going to be running through the press. I'm going to be printing four pages up in the press, so you'd have the schematic here, four pages on, on the page. It shows where the cuts are going to be made, where the trims are, has the dimensions of the margins, the text the, block, the text block where the, and where they're positioned on the press. And this is something I'll be using by my side the entire time I'm going through the process, even right down to when I go do the binding. So right now we've got four pages on each Side. side. So there's eight on each sheet. And That's right. Four sheets. And what this is you're looking at here is the imposition. Essentially, if you take a book and you take the spine off and you snip the thread that's holding it all together and you open it up, the pages will unfold, but they won't be in order because they're nested inside each other. So in creating an imposition, what I do, I create a, a mock-up, then I unfold it and figure out which pages are going to back up on which ones. You know, here's 14, beside 23. Right. And it's not intuitive right away, but once you do this in position, open it up, you can start laying down your form and types and illustrations to, uh, to print. And it has to be done perfectly, because if you have something wrong, there's a yeah. page at a place <laughs> in the imposition. Yeah. When you go to bring it all together again, it's uh, catastrophe. It's catastrophe. You have to go back and reprint a section. This is where all the thinking is done. I even look at it as, uh, as, as building a house. You begin with the foundation. You don't begin with the spires or the, uh, the roof or whatever. So we've got that thought through, and now we actually get to the, the hardcore part of the craft. So what are we doing now? We're standing in front of a, um, a job case. Ever since Gutenberg invented movable type in the mid-1400s, the type has had to be kept in a shallow tray filled with dividers so that each letter and each character has a separate little cubby hole. So they know exactly where it is, without so even thinking. That's it. There's a lay of the case. Use the example of a touch typist. It, once you've spent you know, several years doing it, you begin to know the lay of the case without even looking at it. And some are bigger cubby holes and some are smaller. Right. The letter E gets a bigger cubby hole because it's a more common letter. 
Well, plus the most commonly used letters are the ones that are most easily accessible. So the Z is over off to the left, right? Precisely. Yeah. Okay. The figures or numerals run along the top. The capitals, which are obviously a necessary aspect of the alphabet, but unless you're setting something that's in all caps, it's not an area you're going to be working too much in. This is a, a, a modern uh, variant of the original type trays. All the uppercase were in one tray and the lowercase were in the bottom. In the stands, typesetters would stand in front of them. This is in the early days of 16th and 17th, 18th century. They would have the uppercase at the top and the lowercase at the bottom. So literally the name of uppercase comes from it. Just because they were actually placed higher up. Uh, so the capital letters became to be called uppercase. The minuscules we call lowercase. So we've got a block of type that you've set out. That's right. You've set out on a composing tray. So I would work uh, in front of this tray. I would assemble a line of type in my composing stick. This is a, a, a small metal tool that is handheld. It's again shallow enough to take the type. I set the type in my hand. Once I've finished a line or two in the composing stick, I transfer from the composing stick to the galley tray. I keep doing that until I've finished, finished a page, a page yeah. and then I either transfer to the press or store it away somewhere safe and carry on typesetting until I run out of type or go out of sorts, as they say. So again, another printing term. It's yeah. uh, each of these uh, individual pieces of metal, the type set atop of it, are referred to as a sort. Let's just uh, have a look at exactly how you lay that line out. It's, it's actually back to front, isn't it? To work left to right, because the type is in reverse, it's relief printed, the, the actual lead type looks backwards. It's like a rubber stamp. If I want to set a line of type, I have to approach the type upside down. It has to be dyslexic then. It does. Of course, I suppose if you, once you got really good at it, your dyslexia would probably work against you again, but it's something you get used to. Experienced typesetters can read easily or even write backwards. And of course, the top of the page is at the bottom. In this particular case. Yeah, of the block. Yeah. yeah. You know, you work from the bottom up. Once you transfer it to press, of course, you arrange it whatever way it, uh, it suits the, the page layout. I guess the other thing too, of course, it's not necessarily with book production, but certainly with newspaper production. The faster you can do it, the faster you get the newspaper out, your information is out in front of the public before your competitions. There's, there's a lot of pressure. There is. And of course, in the age of uh, letterpress, up until 1900, everything printed was printed this way. So printers were really quite reliant upon these individuals. It was a separate trade. Up until, let's say, the third quarter of the 20th century. It was still a separate trade and oftentimes because of the union rules the typographers couldn't actually go anywhere near the presses and the pressmen couldn't go anywhere near the type. And they were powerful enough to postpone the introduction of new offset technology. I believe so. The big change in the big printing houses in New York came around 1980 pretty much uh, the same time that Reagan came in. Reagan and Thatcher. And in London as well. Uh, the unions uh, couldn't stave off the tides of technology beyond that. Okay, moving along from the type tray to the next stage, which is? Once you have the type set up, you yeah. can start taking proofs. Now, a proof is different from an addition. A proof is something you take two or three copies of, either hand them out to other people or go through them yourself to check for typographical errors, to make sure that your spacing is in order, to make sure that the quality of printing is uniform. There's no faded parts, consistency. Yeah. yeah, as long as you've got the type set up, you can just take a quick proof of it. Also, check for typographical errors, which is extremely important. Proofreading functions. That's right. But as well, there's the actual inking. It's, and, it's uh, a quality check. That's yeah. right. Once that's done, it can be set up on the press bed. So what you do then, sorry, if you see a, a line, let's say, or maybe a paragraph that seems to be a little bit lighter than the others, 
you need to it's called make ready it's essentially what you say it's putting either piece of tissue under the type itself raising it up for whatever reason the type is slightly worn or there's a slight manufacturing difference between all types should be made type high which is 0.918 of an inch but sometimes there are variants for centuries it was standard so we've got say one page one sheet laid out a sheet with four pages up on it now we've run it through the press yeah we've taken a proof sorted out all the problems with it made any changes it's also the last chance to make any changes to the text because now we're going to print the addition of this sheet you know I create a print schedule for the whole job that tells me which pages I'm going to print first I end up doing three separate sheets one side first and then go back by the time that I'm ready to do the back side of those they'll be well dry so I create the schedule and I also come up with a diagram I have that tells me which sheets are up on which page and which way they go into the press it's one further exercise I do to, to ensure that I'm on the right track and that nothing is getting mixed up or turned okay. upside down or backwards or because okay. of course the penalty for making an error at this stage of course is that you ruin a section well yeah um, and the cost of the paper and the cost of the paper the labor to do it again it's almost like the, the old adage from carpentry it's measure measure yeah, twice cut once double triple check and then print which comes to printing yeah okay so we'll uh, move on over to your lovely press here this is a Vandercook uh, 219 proofing press first proof press was invented in about 1920 and they were used up until about 1980 for short runs this is a relief press so I can't print offset plates or intaglio it has to be relief it seems to me the most important thing about this would be that it's level and it's even level and even and set properly and designed properly you know most proof presses are set for uh, a type high uh, this one has an adjustable bed so it's the, the bed raises up and down by microns but most of them are set for that nine yeah sometimes they're set for um, what's called galley height so they're a little deeper than type high which means you can take the, the galley tray that I was showing you earlier and just drop it on the press take your proof this one does both okay because I can just raise or lower the press bed Okay. To, to suit, which is a wonderful feature, by the way. Why is that? It just saves a lot of work. If I put on a particular form, say a, a, a wood engraving or a block print, it's a little too shallow because sometimes those aren't measured as quite precisely as the metal. Mm -hmm. uh, I can raise the press up, the press bed up, uh, to meet the, uh, the rollers and the drum. Where are we at now? We've moved the type onto the press bed, and I just want to describe the press so that the listeners understand what it is. It's, it's a long narrow press, 10 feet long. Oh, yeah. The press bed is, is, is about uh, two and a half feet by uh, one and a half feet. So you um, could do a poster on that. That's right. Yeah. Uh, it's actually a standard paper size that fits onto it. It has a hand cranked press head that has a drum on it. There's a steel bed or form bolted into the press with a lockup bar. It's surrounded by metal, what's referred to as furniture. They're basically mm -hmm. metal blocks that hold it in place so that it doesn't move around. It's like one of those Pella windows where you lock it. It's called a positive lockup bar. There's a lever sticking out from it, perpendicular to it, that wedges it against the two bearer bars of the press. So that keeps the form from moving under the pressure of the drum. And the roll of the ink rollers. Yeah. That's right. And okay. You want a really solid lockup because if type is moving around, it'll wear the edges off it. And right. eventually, proofs are additions you take won't be as crisp, but the impression will not be there at the edges. 
that's why first edition right now they're sort of just collectible but one of the main concerns was that if you run it through ten printings it's not going to be as crisp and clear because it's exactly what you said. Exactly. I mean type wears down. It's just lead. Even foundry type which has a hardener in it. Eventually there should be a pressman on watch who will look for this sort of thing and replace the type. In my case it's not really an issue because I'm going for perfect impressions and short runs. After it's done the stuff just gets back in the disc back into the tray. I'm speaking with Larry Thompson who is proprietor of a private press called Grayweather's Press in Merrickville, Ontario which is about an hour south of Ottawa. Then what do we do? Well we print. What about inking though? We ink first, no? Yes. This press is already inked up but I'll go through what's in it. The ink is put onto, it would have been a stone, flat sheet of marble. I use a piece of plate glass which is just as good. Sunlight is really softened and warmed the ink. Usually the ink comes thicker and less. This is a rubber based ink. It's great because it never really ever dries and you don't get skinning and you can see how tacky it is. Yeah, it looks like tar. And this is used for offset. This isn't specific to letterpress ink. Is there a specific? There is, but I know that the commercially made stuff for offset is essentially the same thing. And Vinson makes excellent ink. And it's just as good for your purposes? For my purposes, yes. These inks, I think, they set the standard. Any new inks coming on the market will have to have a good opacity. They have to be even. There's a whole science to that as well. Okay, so you've got a palette there. I have a palette knife. I warm the ink. I take a small amount on my palette knife. And I just dab across the top distributor roller. These top ones are metal. The bottom ones are rubber. They ride in front of the drum on the press head. And the drum is what the paper is actually? The paper will be on that when I begin the process. So I'm very lucky with this press. It came with what's called an automatic ink distribution system. Really what it is is it's a little motor, electric motor, inside it attached to a bicycle chain, which turns an inking drum down inside the press. And what it does is it's very fast and efficient at distributing the ink through the press. That's one thing I don't have to hand crank. Through the press or spread it across the rollers? Across the rollers. Essentially the idea is to get even inking on the rubber rollers. The rubber rollers will actually connect with the type. First of all, distribute the ink. So there's an oscillating roller on top, the distribution roller. The distribution roller evenly applies the ink across the rubber rollers that are below. And that should be enough. We can take a proof. I'm hand cranking the press head down to the end of the press bed and then back again. The roller's going back, put another layer of ink on, prepare it for the next print. Now what happens if, again, you look at that and you see it's maybe a bit too filled in? Maybe I've got too much ink on the press. And what would you have to do? Clean the press and start over. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's probably the best thing to do. In other words, you may have just put too many dabs onto that roller. Yeah, the idea is to start, when you're inking the press, is to start minimal and build up until you get to the right point. It's awkward sometimes because you can proof on glossy paper like this. 
It's very smooth, very boring, but you can print with a minimal amount of ink perfectly. And yes, unbelievably yeah. crisp. It's beautiful. It's, yeah, it it's, really is. It's, it's the the nicer the paper, the harder it is to print on. Nicer meaning what? The greater the rag content? Yeah, it's if it's pure cotton rag made by Saint Armand Papery in Montreal. Paper so beautiful, you, you know, you just want to leave it as it is. But you know, when it comes time to print it, you you really want to make sure that your press is working it the best it possibly can. You don't want to be taking proofs with your nice paper because it's very expensive. Uh, but you pretty well have to. If there comes a point where you have to, you, you've got to set to the best of your ability. You've got to basically risk one a sheet of your paper. Or it always has to be a start. Yeah. And um, how much does a sheet of paper cost typically? Oh, anywhere from a dollar to ten dollars a sheet. Yeah. The most recent book I did, I printed on uh, a French paper called Arches. Yes. Text. Arches is, is popular with painters. It's uh, they mostly you see that, but they also do printmaking paper, mm -hmm. which is very nice and takes uh, takes the type and the ink very well. I knew of it because it was popular with calligraphers. Uh, I bought some of that. This is an eight-page booklet, really, about a foot tall, uh, maybe six inches, seven inches wide. The paper for this edition cost me about 175 dollars. I did 75 copies of this, so. If I wanted to do a thicker book, you just need to multiply. Okay, so we've done our proof, we like the proof, then you just start cranking it, right? That's right. The, it's, it's a rolling process. I go back to my printing schedule, um, I print that, I take the type off the press, distribute it back into its type trays, get to work, set the next you know, four pages, print that, I repeat that six times. Uh, once I have all the, the three sheets printed, I take them, I uh, this case, cut them through the middle, fold them all, collate them into sets, and ultimately it comes into two signatures. A signature is a section in a book, folded section. Typically, how many make it consisting of? Could be any number. Could be uh, could be eight pages. Could be sixty-four pages divided by eight. And yeah, exactly. The fatter your signature, the harder it is to work with the binding and penetrate through it. And so. Most signatures are reasonable. They range between 16 and 32 pages. Once the book is collated, everything is in the sections. They're ganged together in a block like this. And then I bring them to the cutter. And this, as I mentioned before, trimming the book is probably one of the scariest points in the entire process because you've taken something you've worked for probably a little month or six weeks on. You've ganged it all together. You've stacked it all up. And now you're going to cut it. <laughs> and if there's a mistake there, I mean, that's... It's simply fatal, that's yeah, it. The hands and are shaking. Yeah. So it's a good idea to be calm, to have be rested, not to be doing this at 2.30 in the morning yeah. in bad light and, and that sort of thing, to take your time. This and is a lovely old machine. Too, this, right? is a, this is actually the oldest piece of machinery in, in the press here. And it's Canadian. It's a Westman and Baker cutter. It would have been, I'm thinking, late 19th century. Uh -huh. Whoever took the old gray paint off it before I had it exposed all this lovely pin striking around it. I don't think they did too much of this uh, after World War One. Right, right. Um, they didn't have to. No, they, they didn't nice. care. I mean, it's that yeah. kind of decoration for, for I, I'm guessing, the last quarter 19th century. It's uh, as good today as it was 125 years ago, so it's been one of the best tools we've, uh, we've ever bought. Of course, there's no safety features on it, um, so I make sure there's no children or
spools around when I'm, uh, when I'm doing my cutting. It looks kind of like a press itself. It's got a big wheel on top that controls a bar that tightens the paper in place so that when the blade connects with it, it doesn't slide all over the place. The blade is controlled by this big arm here, which comes down, and, then, and that's it. Very good. It's trimmed. Okay, so we go from the trimming to the uh, the actual, what would you call this, the binding, I guess. Yes, yeah, the binding. But it's In my case, I'm very, very lucky to have my life partner, Polly Dean. She began her career as a calligrapher. She does um, visual arts now. But for me, she'll still go back and calligraphy my books. And for Kubla Khan, I left space when I printed it for two drop cap letters. They're big letters that are sunken into the text block. When I printed it, there was just a big white space, a big white block at the beginning of the paragraph. Now, of course, Holly has done her calligraphy in it. The K on Kubla. That's right. She also did T on the at the beginning of Coleridge's introduction to his own poem. Right. Lovely. So once all the finishing is done, we move to uh, the binding process. Now I bind my own books. I just take beautiful decorative coverweight paper and wrap the books and sew them into this cover stock with an exposed spine. You're actually... It's almost like weaving it in there, isn't it? It's, uh, That's right. Some people really enjoy seeing the uh, evidence of handwork. Again, very sort of labor-intensive. But it's interesting. This was the first book I printed off the press. And at the time, it was a, not just a getting to know the press and learning techniques about printing myself, but it was also an experiment to see if this was exactly what I... This was just sort of another mad, <laughs> crazy direction I'd gone off in, or if it was something I really loved and wanted to do. And, and it was... When it all came together, I mean, I, I must say, it was, it was quite a frantic scramble going through and seeing these large sheets with type on it, and, and it was just kind of, uh, I couldn't really see the end. But when they began to fold down, after they were trimmed, and I started to bind them, yeah. it all came together. All that foundation work that was done earlier, everything stepped into place, and it wasn't without hitches. I had to reprint one section because of a mistake I made. Uh, a typo, yeah. yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's a moment of truth, really. When you're standing looking at a, a typographical error and you're thinking, you just go, well, it'll be really easy just to just to ignore it and carry on. Or you can do the right thing and reprint, do it right. And even that's not a guarantee. I'm pleased with Kubla Khan. There's, no one's ever found a, an error in it. So it, it worked out well. But there are plenty of other quirks in it that, from a sort of a fine printing point of view, that make up for that. But the layman's eye wouldn't find it. No, and, and in the end, I'm very fond of the book because it, it was it was the first book and it's the one that told me that, yeah, this is something I'll be doing in my dotage and, and mm. it's something that's going to carry on. And I have. I've done two books since and it's just finding time from my other endeavors to dedicate to it. Now, you did 150 Kubla Khan? That's right. Do you have any left for sale? Yes, I do. How, yeah, many, uh, how many you've got left? I think I've got about 40 left. Okay, and, yeah. they, and how much do they cost? They're $90 a piece. And how do people buy them? Probably the best way is just to get in touch with me directly. I do sell some books uh, through Bytown Bookshop in Ottawa. Okay, so is there a website that they can go to? www.grayweathers.com Great, well thank you very much for taking us into your studio and pulling it all together for well, us. Well, it's, uh, it's been great having you here, Nigel. I've been speaking with Larry Thompson, who is the proprietor of Greyweathers Press in Merrickville, Ontario, just south of Ottawa. Thanks again. You're welcome.